This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. Greetings and welcome to Sheer Listening Pleasure with your host, me, Neil Shear. I'm a recently retired academic dermatologist. Over my career, I have been inspired by my many colleagues and trainees who are dedicated to helping people with major life-altering skin conditions. Some people don't recognize dermatology as a real medical specialty. Oh, but is it ever? From the many stories of patients and providers, I hope we can inspire others. We will travel across Canada to delve into inspirational contributions to improve the quality of life of others. Very few specialties have as many diverse diseases as dermatology. So without any gory photos, just friendly chats, we will take you into a world behind the scenes, a world of caring, compassion, and inspiration. And of course, I want to give a very special shout out to our sponsors supporting the podcast from Amgen Canada. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. With knowledge beyond measure, discussions you will treasure. It's sheer, sheer, sheer listening pleasure. The reason we have this podcast today is to honor a person who was one of the many contributors to the Skin of Color writing challenge, if you will, for residents in Canada. And uh, we had a lot of really great, really great submissions. But there was one person who did stand out, and that was Samantha. And I'm talking to her today about this. And Samantha is a resident in the French program in Montreal. And what stage are you at now? It's a bit complicated because I'm supposed to be in my second year, but I took a maternity leave in the middle of my first year. So right now I'm finishing up my first year. So as of next month, I'll be in my second year. Many babies were born during dermacology residencies. (laughs) You you sort of get everybody's in a different cycle and all that sort of stuff. So it's really interesting. Now, listen, I was looking up just a bit about your last name and I had a sense of where in Central Africa, the three main countries that have that last name. So how would you pronounce your name? And do you know where the roots are from, from your family personally? Yeah, so it's pronounced Bizi Mungu. So I usually shorten it to Bizi sometimes. It's just easier and it rolls off the tongue. Well, now that you're famous, you can just go by that. So that's okay. (laughs) Now that I'm famous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know I was famous. (laughs) But yeah, it's from Rwanda. Both of my parents are from Rwanda and they came here when they were students. So I was born in Canada, but my roots, my blood is 100% Rwandan. Okay. Yeah, because according to my research in that region, of course, there were three major countries with that last name, but Rwanda was by far much more popular in terms of that. And it's very nice that you kept it. Sometimes people change these names when they move. And whenever I had students like that, I said, honestly, in a couple of years, you'll regret that and you just go back to your family name because it, it has real meaning and roots, especially if you've left those roots. Do you still have family there? Yes, most of my family is still there. So well, I have my direct family, my parents and my sisters who are here in Canada. And I have some family in France, but the rest are all still in Rwanda. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, listen, I just remember reading your submission. And I just want to give background for people who are listening and may not know that there's this dye tide program that was developed 
by the, I'll just say the Chronicle group, to get together people to look at issues. Now, just to, to understand where the letters for DITI, et cetera, come from, that it was, you know, for Dermatology Industry Task Force on inclusivity and diversity and equity, and which started wasn't just like, oh yeah, this is a hot topic now, let's talk about it. This has been going back at least, maybe, I don't I could be corrected, but three, four years. And it's really brought together industry as well as clinicians, but also has had all kinds of other impacts, including creating a new program at the University of Toronto of Ethnodermatology. And that was a big deal. We still have more to come. It takes time for the university to go through all those stages, but that's a big deal. And all the many meetings skin of color, as well as for indigenous populations and to hear their stories and how they're recognizing both their perspective to respect the past and the land and many other areas. So there's a lot of bits and pieces around here. And just in our little chatting online before this, I mean, I start to think about all these overlaps, you know, it isn't just black skin and brown skin and oh yeah, yellow skin, whatever that means, which just sounds horrible to me, but just to have this idea of the issues that go with them in terms of risks of certain diseases and looking at access to care. There have been some very good programs. I don't know, University of Toronto, we've been very lucky to be able to get attention from the university to support skin of color. But this book, so what did this mean to you, I guess, I suppose is really a good starting point. When you saw this, what did you think? I can't imagine. It's not something every day where you hear that somebody wants to hear your story. Yeah, I was really surprised when I saw the email about this contest that was uh, being launched for dermatology residents. As soon as I saw it, I knew that it was something that I wanted to participate in because ever since I was in medical school, I was always really passionate and really involved with advocacy work and like promoting diversity and inclusion in the medical field. And I brought that with me into dermatology. And I, I love to write too. It's something I don't have the time to do as much as I used to before medical school. But when I have the chance to, I like to write. And I, I wrote like a similar sort of article in the past for the CMAJ. So I immediately knew that I wanted to participate in this contest. So yeah, it came a bit short notice for me. I was on vacation with my daughter and my partner. We were visiting my parents out east. But I just took like a whole day to myself. I sort of locked myself in a room and just there's all these themes that I think about a lot, just in general, in relation to dermatology, in relation to like skin of color, like you were talking about, and certain barriers to care and inequities that I see, not only in the clinic, but I also see in my surroundings and my community. So these are things that I'm kind of like always <laughs> somewhere uh, circulating in my thoughts. So I just sat down and I, I chose a topic of traction alopecia, a patient that I saw when I was in a clinic who suffered from traction alopecia and who took years and years and years before she eventually consulted to the point where her hair loss had become irreversible, cicatricial. And this was something that's not uncommon that, you know, if you look at the literature, you see that it's something that's quite prevalent. So just taking that clinical encounter, I just delved deeper into the topic of why, what are the reasons why she would maybe take a long time before consulting a doctor? What are the reasons why she would even have this condition called traction alopecia? We know that it's linked to wearing certain hairstyles in a repetitive fashion and for a long period of time. So why would someone who's experiencing hair loss continue to do the thing that's causing her hair to fall out? Well, you have to look at other factors. So it was really fun for me to just 
take like a deep dive into that topic and write the article. And I'm happy that it turned out to be a good article. And I'm happy that the committee was impressed with the article. So. Well, it was engaging and using an example, you know, it's always like one case, one person, we can learn so much from one person and it shines a light in the whole area. You know, you turn on one light bulb and the whole room lights up and that's what it was like. And I just remember, you know, we got these and, and I read yours and I thought, oh, I have to write back. I go, this is a winner. This is really the kind of story you want to hear. And I will tell you from reading people's letters, trying to get into dermatology. So they're not dermatologists yet, but they're applying. I must've read thousands over the years. And there was one, one that I just read. I thought that was the most impactful, thoughtful story. And it was the same sort of thing of addressing what the day was like. And then this person came in and it really took me back and made me think, I don't understand any of this. Yeah, I've seen lots of women with black skin, hair, pulled back, all these other things, whatever. And you come in and then they take off their wig or whatever covering they have. And you think, oh my God, could we not have done something sooner? And then you walk away from that. And instead of just going, yeah, that's what happens. You think, I don't understand it. (laughs) And, And I think that you just highlighted that. It's like, I don't understand it. I want to understand it now. I don't think we can fix this until we actually understand. So what happens in your environment now in terms of both in the French program, maybe the English program as well? What do you see that's going on that's happening in this whole area of skin of color and inclusivity, et cetera? Well, I actually started seeing some change even before I was accepted into dermatology. So when I was a med student, especially during 2020, it was sort of like a big year of awakening and shedding light on racial issues. So it started with what happened in the United States with George Floyd, and then it sort of made its way to different sectors, including health. So while I was in med school, there was a group of med students who really advocated for sort of like doing like a whole revamp of the whole medical curriculum to incorporate more diversity, to remove biases that could be present. So we saw that in our dermatology lectures too, because I remember when I was in med school and we had our dermatology lectures, it was very few images of skin of color. So when you would see any type of pathology, most of the pictures we were seeing that we were learning from were on white skin. So it's hard after that. I remember even in my pediatrics rotation, we had like a small group where we were talking about a case of a a child coming with fever and a rash. So we talked about the case and then someone asked the question because we were talking about how the rash looked red on white skin. Someone asked, what if it was on a child with darker skin? How would it look like? And the instructor was like, oh, I don't know, you can ask the parent. And I found that kind of insensitive. And I feel like it really is one of those things that kind of stuck with me that I think as medical experts, we need to make more of an effort. We can't just rely on asking the parents. Yes, it could be like, it can help. It can give us a clue, but we need to, we need to do more. So those students who advocated for revamping the medical curriculum, they also advocated for having more images of skin of color and teaching the differences when we learn about skin conditions. So that's something that happened, but more towards the end of when I was finishing med school. So I didn't really see the product of it, but I think just in general, I've been seeing a lot in dermatology that we're incorporating more and more images of skin of color. One thing that I really like is when I look up to date for when I look at any skin condition, a lot of times they'll have an image on lighter skin and on darker skin. So it's really good for our learning, you know, for us as trainees who are going to become independent dermatologists and we're going to be receiving these patients who have different skin tones. You know, it's, it's good to be trained to recognize skin conditions in all skin types. 
So yeah, I'm seeing a, a lot of positive change. It's unfortunate that it took so much time for it to start happening, but I think now it's becoming very widespread and I think it gives me hope for the future of dermatology. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's such a challenging area and you're seeing this now from a dermatology perspective that all the wonderful stuff we do for some very, very severe diseases, very impactful diseases, all these sorts of things. Now, when you're in clinics, I would think you obviously could be very multilingual. I mean, how many different languages and dialects do you speak? Do you know? Well, I speak French and English. I have an intermediate level of Spanish and I understand a bit of my parents' mother tongue, but unfortunately I don't speak it. But you can understand it. Some of it, yes. Yeah. But I don't, not enough to really, uh, for example, to be able to, to treat a patient who only speaks that language. Okay. Because years ago, two of our fellows did go to Africa to spend a month there, you know, just to see what was going on and all that stuff, just for their own learning. They weren't there, you know, to save them. People were doing fine. They didn't need them. Yeah. But they were there to learn. And there's nothing like uh, doing that. Actually, Haiti used to be a place that people could go to for that, but that would be too dangerous to do. So there's all kinds of things. That's the other thing that's quite different in the provinces. In Ontario, uh, people of black skin have come from many different areas, but a lot from the U.S. with the Underground Railroad, et cetera. And then over years, uh, things have changed. Uh, not that that was such a wonderful, easy thing to do. That was a very life-threatening experience. And in Quebec, you have Haitians and other groups that come through and you sort of see based on the languages that people came from where they ended up. It's sort of interesting and different. And yet it's a diversity that makes it really interesting. I mean, you know, once you get a handle of that. So where do you go now? There's no race, you know, to finish. Do you have some sort of, you know, game plan or is just day to day, get your exams done, et cetera? It's hard to say because I am still early on in my training, but I'm interested in hair loss, especially in like the types of hair loss that affect Black women more commonly and that seem to be a bit less researched than other types of hair loss. It's an interest of mine. We'll see if over the years, if I'm able to pursue like some specialized training in that. In general, I see myself having a fulfilling practice where I can just take care of my patients. And I think something that was really rewarding, like on top of matching into dermatology, you know, knowing that I'm going to become a dermatologist, it really warmed my heart to see like when I announced that I matched into dermatology, a lot of people in my community, in the Black community in Montreal were like very, very proud of me because there's so few Black dermatologists <laughs> in Canada. I think in Toronto, that's where the most of them are concentrated. In Montreal, we had one who worked for a long time, but I think who is retiring or who is already retired. So a lot of times you'll see people asking, do you know of a Black dermatologist? Sometimes there's like that assumption that a Black dermatologist who's more accustomed to seeing dark skin will be more able to treat dark skin, even though that's not necessarily the case. I think, you know, any good dermatologist can treat any patient, but it was very heartwarming to get like that support. And a lot of people who are really looking forward to the day where uh, I'll become a staff and be able to take their kids on as patients. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I am excited to hopefully be able to have like, uh, you know, show that representation for the Black community and be able to have a practice where I can treat patients who maybe sometimes feel like their skin isn't, I don't know, well understood or who don't maybe get the level of cultural competency that they would like in general. So that's another thing that I'm hoping to be able to incorporate in the future. That's a good way to put it. And I think you'll be looking in the rearview mirror one day and say, how did I become a role model? <laughs> what, 
who are all these other people? And you'll look and you'll see there's a bigger group and there's more, which is actually very, very satisfying. And to that sort of end, you know, as an educator within your own program, you know, you end up having an impact on how things can be added to the curriculum, fit into the curriculum, things that will actually be relevant to this broader perspective. But it is fun. It's fun to see. And I think it's very gratifying. And certainly, you know, people who've started in this area years ago have stayed with it. They just keep doing it because there's a need and you've got the passion for it. It's great. That's wonderful. With all of this, what made you even get interested in dermatology? Did you have a role model? Did you have an experience? What happened? Funnily enough, I didn't have a role model that led me to dermatology. When I started medical school, I wanted to be a pediatrician. So I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician because, well, I loved medicine. I loved health. I loved studying the human body and I loved kids. So to me, it was a no-brainer. But I also didn't really know any doctors, to be honest, before going into medicine. I, there's nobody in my family who's a doctor. I have nobody close to me who's a doctor. So it was sort of just like a vague dream. It was a dream. It was an idea. And I was like so grateful when I got into med school. And when I was in my preclinical years, I did some shadowing in the pediatric hospital at St. Justine. It's a very specialized hospital. So they have like pediatric gastroenterology, pediatric oncology. So I did shadowing in different subspecialties. And the day that I did pediatric dermatology, I just fell in love with the practice. It was such a fun clinic. The doctors looked so happy. The patients were, it's not like heavy pathologies or the diseases that they have. So in general, the patients were happy. And, you know, if you're able to solve the problem, it's like the patient satisfaction is just so rewarding. They're so grateful towards the doctors. That was just my moment when I had a switch and I was like, this is what I want to do. And it was from that point on that I sort of switched gears and went towards dermatology. Interesting. When I started in medicine, I went from engineering basically into medicine and it was at McMaster in the early years of McMaster. And I started chatting with people and, and I started to think, wait, what's going on here? And I would say at least 50% of the class had one parent or two who were doctors. And I thought, hey, wait a minute, this is cheating. This is stacked. Of course. So one, if they want to get a rotation somewhere, oh, they just ask, you know, their dad and their dad, oh yeah, come out to the clinic or something. And me, I could, I don't know who to talk to. And I don't have medical books at home. You know, it was like, wait a minute. So I have to say for many of the people I had as trainees, if I really, really liked them early on, I go, I have a question for you. Do you have a parent who's a doctor? They go, no. I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm with you. So I have a bias there. I mean, I really have a bias there. And I think though, in many ways, you know, we don't have to pick up the family tradition. So if your mother was a pediatrician, you don't have to be a pediatrician. You know, you get to choose. But I think we have a very different perspective. But I still feel, not only did I feel that it was odd, and then I felt a little bit foolish that I never even thought of it, but it is a funny thing, you know, when you realize that all oh, these people have these medical connections and you're just, you're just a person who happens to really like this. And it's not the family job, you know. Yeah, I felt exactly the same way. Like, I think I was maybe naive before going into medicine. I thought everyone had the same sort of path. But yeah, when you, you get in and you realize that, oh, this person's mom is like the director of, of this hospital. And like, you know, it just gives people different opportunities also for research, for rotation. So it's definitely not a level playing field, but it's the reality. It's life. But it's also something that 
push me to encourage kids who come from different backgrounds, who come from like underprivileged backgrounds, who never even imagined that one day they could be something like a doctor, to just show them that that's a possibility. So that was something that I did when I was in med school. I was a mentor for kids in high schools from underprivileged areas. Yeah, because you can't become something that you don't see. So, you know, I think it's also important to just give those opportunities to kids from all walks of life because it's not necessarily because you come from a poor background that you don't have what it takes to become a doctor. Maybe it wasn't mentioned to you when you were in high school. We didn't tell you what classes you had to take and all these sorts of things. So, Yeah, we don't have a club for this. We should have a club. <laughs> now, maybe you can tell me your perspective on this. Often when you sit there and you have a very rational discussion with a person, and you say, well, here's what we can do. And they look at you like the sound was off or something. And you think, well, so what do you want to do? I don't know. But you're here. I think we should do this. Are you okay with that? And I don't know. And you think, are they just depressed or what's going on? You must see that, yes? Yeah, we do see it sometimes. And yeah, it's hard to sometimes connect or like to pierce through and to sort of understand like uh, I guess there's like different types of patients and some are very much on board like they you know everything that the doctor says like they seem to be really enthusiastic about but some like you said you're not too sure we can't really read them but in cases like the the one that we're talking about with the hair loss maybe trying to understand maybe there are certain things that they can't do maybe they have to keep up a certain appearance for their job or for you know, whatever it may be, but it's tough. It's tough sometimes. Yeah, no, it's good. to The job's a good example. It's good to get to the root. I have to say, I got to the point, you know, almost every patient I saw, I would just say, what kind of work do you do? And they go, I don't work. I said, well, are you working? What do you do? Are you at home? What's going on? Oh, we just had a kid. Okay, you get a story. It's the first thing I want to hear. I, it just gives you some sort of quick perspective of where that person is in their lifeline at that point, and especially if you think it might be very stress-driven, but also what they value most. Some people with very bad skin disease just want the back of their hands to look nice because they're in sales and people won't get near them. You know, And they go, well, listen, everything else would be a bonus, but that's what I want to get done. And you can make me better all over my body, but if my hands are still bad, you failed. They don't say it that way, but I think most people are just happy if you ask. Anyways, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Dermatology, at the end of the day, is a lot of fun. And there are other specialties, I'm sure, when you go home, all you can think of is, I'm so glad I didn't have that disease. But in dermatology, you go home and you think, gee, look at all the people we helped today. And the other thing I will say is, people ask why you went in. I said, I looked at a bunch of options of things that I would like. And obviously surgery is out of it. I'm not a surgeon, I'm not even close. But I did wanna be able to be like in my 50s and still be able to go to my kid's party and so for their birthday party and stuff like that and not being called out to do something. So, you know, it was a bit of a lifestyle decision. As it ended up, it was a very harsh lifestyle, <laughs> but it was not the end of the world. It was still there. I was in the right place at the right time. And it's nice. You know, you sound like you really know you're in the right place at the right time. You're not looking for other opportunities other than doing what you're doing. Yeah, I'm very happy where I am. <laughs> isn't, isn't that nice? It's so nice. And, you know, you catch up with your classmates, I'm sure too, from undergrad and they go, why are you smiling all the time? <laughs> it's like, it's because it's okay. We're allowed to do that. It is special. Well, that's really great. We were just talking a little bit about all the overlaps between the diseases and everything like that. But, you know, it's hard in this venue. There's a lot of work to do. 
But anything that you'd like to talk about before we finish? Well, happy Black History Month. <laughs> yes, Black History Month. We were going to talk about that. So you can't undo the past. Apparently, it seems like you can't change the future sometimes. But you know, from your perspective, and here we are, it happens to be in Black History Month. So we both brought that up. What does it mean to you? So it definitely means different things to a lot of people. But the way I've always viewed it, is that um, it's a time to celebrate the positive aspects of Black history in general, because I think a lot of times, well, it's changed a bit now, but when I was growing up, what we would learn in school about the history of Black people over the years and across the globe, it was a lot of negative stuff, but it's real stuff that happened, and we definitely can't just turn a blind eye to it. But for a child to be hearing that their history is resumed to the slave trade and colonization and segregation. It's kind of depressing and it's not really, you know, it's not the kind of ideas you want to put into a kid's head. So for me, Black History Month is the time to just look at the positive things that Black people and Black cultures have contributed to the world. We're in health. So I think it's fun to sort of look back. Even I took the time these past few weeks to just look in dermatology, who are some Black doctors who have had a positive impact on dermatology or just in general and in different fields and just celebrate positivity. Uh, yeah, it's just a time to really just be thankful and celebrate the positive contributions that Black people have made uh, in the world. And like I said, it's, we don't need to necessarily turn a blind eye to the negative things that have happened, but it's always good to just stay positive and look towards the future because the future is bright. There's a lot of Black people across the world who are doing remarkable things. So it's, it's, always, it's always great to not only look at the past, but also look towards the future. That's a nice summary. I mean, there's just so many brilliant, brilliant history of the Black community and what they've been able to do until things were torn down. And to see some of the best scientists and you know, men and women, whether it's mathematical geniuses or botany geniuses or like all these things, and you read this and you go, I mean, even as a kid, I would read these things and go, wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. And we keep discovering new ones. There was one today I read about this wonderful pottery, I think it was in the UK. And they had just recently found out that the person who made this very, very valuable pottery from quite a long time ago was Black. They didn't know that. They knew their name, but they didn't know they were Black. And it wasn't like they avoided saying they were Black. They just felt, well, you know, if it's done, it must have been by a white person, but that's not the case. So there's just so much to do and so many challenges. And the challenges are so built into the system. My wife and I were walking, we live in downtown Toronto. We're walking down one of the side streets and about to go into Major Street. And next to a, a store, there were two young boys playing a game. One was the older boy and one was the younger brother, I would guess. And they seemed to be playing some game with a stick where the stick would be thrown and then somebody would have to catch it and whatever. And so I'm watching them. I, I thought they've just, you know, like me and my brother, we'd just be playing silly games. And they made up this game. And then I see the older brother, the taller one, that holds up the stick and says, okay, so for the next round, here's what we're going to do. And I, I just stopped cold. And to me, it meant he who holds the stick makes the rules. And I thought, oh my God, that's just, those two kids, it doesn't matter color thing. He who holds the stick makes the rules. Well, okay, that's it. That says it all, I think, to me. And what is that stick? It could be an economic stick. It could be a leadership role that somebody has. It could be relations behind the scene. People belong to clubs and the clubs do things. And 
you know, he who holds the stick make the rules. I, you know, I think that's something that we always have to be aware of because you can come into an office and say, you know, listen to the vice president of whatever at the university and here's what we'd want to do. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But they're not going to do it. At one of the hospitals I worked in, I won't name it, whenever you had a good idea, if you went to the bottom and said, you know, to whoever it was and say, here's what I want to do, then, okay, they move it up and then it would die on its way up. And then they, I said, what am I going to do? Well, why don't you talk to the bot, you know, the person at the top? And then every idea died on the way down. So, you know, you have to start to make your own rules and <laughs> carry your own stick and not give up because it's a virtuous career. And it's something you're going to look back on and be really proud of. And then your, your children will be proud of and all that stuff. So, which is really nice. And you'll say, no, it's nice. Your, your mother's a daughter. You'll be able to get into medical school. <laughs> So anyways, it's really something very special. And I'm so proud of what you've done. And thank you for taking time today to do this. Thank you. And like, I am really grateful to the whole Dietide Committee for coming up with this project and having this meeting and just the, the, all the networking, everything that I have now, thanks to this contest. It's really great. So thank you. Thank you so much again for doing this. And congratulations for your contribution to the whole process of the Skin of Color program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure meeting you. And hopefully we'll get to chat again sometime in the future. Great. Be great. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of Sheer Listening Pleasure, please do share it with your friends and colleagues. On our next episode, Neil will chat with another guest from the world of dermatology. To subscribe, go to www derm.city, or find the SLP podcast at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or, really, wherever you get your podcasts. The producer is Jeremy Visser. Research for this episode came from Christella Teller-Ruiz, John Evans, and Kylie Rebenick. Support for this podcast comes from Amgen Canada. Amgen Canada serves dermatology patients throughout Canada by delivering vital medicines to them. In addition, Amgen contributes to developing new therapies, or new uses for existing medicines, in partnership with many of Canada's leading healthcare, academic, research, government, and patient organizations. Today, tens of thousands of Canadians use Amgen medicines every year. Learn more at www.amgen.ca. Send your comments to slp at chronicle.org. Until next time. Be well.